Well, brothers and sisters, welcome to Pentecost Sunday. Special thanks to our resident church calendar expert, D. As always, color and imagination for the uh, different seasons on the calendar. Thank you. It's beautiful. Day that, uh, that marks in the life of the church the coming of the Spirit of God into the lives of His people like never before. Acts 2, you're probably familiar with the account, says... Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind. Violent wind. Think storm. Stirring things up. Changing things. It came from heaven. And it filled the house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Garrison Keillor, great storyteller that he is, sums up that event in these words. The flames lit on their little heads and bravely and dangerously went they onward. (laughs) Now, I don't know about the flames lighting on their little heads. Scripture does say that uh, separated and came to rest on each of them, but for sure, Keeler is right about them moving onward bravely. Because life as they had known it up to that point changed. In fact, it became for them increasingly dangerous as they lived out their commitment to Jesus as Lord in a culture and in a political climate that was not terribly keen on the idea of Jesus being Lord. But it was the presence of the Spirit of God that empowered them and made them more courageous than they had ever been. And the rest of Acts records for us their bold and courageous living. It is remarkable. And it is, I think, I think it is oftentimes that, that idea of courageous living that can be lost on us. Okay, I'll say it'll be lost on me, you know, and, and, and you can share it if you want. A willingness to live in obedience to God that takes courage and boldness because it makes being like Jesus our number one priority. And automatically that's a problem because as we know from the Gospels, Jesus was loved by some and hated by others. And I think that that quite often the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives is more of a theological truth that we embrace, that we know, that we understand. But I don't know if the presence of the Spirit of God in our lives to empower us to live like Jesus versus just living like nice folks, living like Jesus, I'm not sure that that I or that maybe we understand it as a necessity for living out the life that Jesus calls us to live absolutely necessary. We can't live it apart from the power of the Spirit in our lives. Sin nature, as you know, I've told you this before, is best explained, I think, in one word, and that's called self. The sin nature is expressed in 
concern for self, desire for the stuff of my life, for be it reputation or power or prestige or wealth, essentially anything that is going to make my life better and more comfortable, to make me more noticed, to make me more popular, to make me more well thought of. That, that is the essence of the sin nature. You ever notice that the word sin has the word I right in the middle of it? It's just, it's, it's a great visual. We live for ourselves naturally. We live for ourselves. And we make life about us. And there is a tendency that even after we have made the commitment to Jesus, we continue to make life about us, and we continue to live for ourselves. And what we have done is we've simply taken Jesus and we've added him to the plethora of activities and commitments that we have in our lives. Nothing could be further from the truth of understanding what it means to be surrendered to Jesus as Lord and filled with the power of God's Spirit in our lives. It is not that Jesus just becomes another part of my busy life. Jesus becomes my life. And all that he calls me to becomes my passion. And, and so, you know, we can... And, and you know how this is. We, we live there. We make relationships about us. We make our marriages about us. We even make church about us. Questions like, is it meeting my needs? Is it what I think the church should be? Uh, We even make salvation about us. It's what Jesus can do for us. And, quite honestly, I sometimes get a bit frustrated when he doesn't do what I think that he should do. Or he doesn't come through in the way that I think that he ought to come through. Can you relate to that? We are the problem, folks. It is us. And it's only the power of the Spirit that gives us the ability to change that. Praise be to God for Pentecost and the power of the Spirit that came in a new way and for the opportunity to be reminded of that every year, at least once a year. We need to remember who it is that we're living for, and who empowers us to live that life. If we understand Jesus as Savior, and we have a pretty good understanding, I think, of of needing to be saved. That's what a Savior does. He saves us from the sin of rebellion against God. I I think we grasp that, but again, I think it's the idea of lordship that we struggle with. It, it is, it's a reality. We've been saved from sin in order to live lives that are no longer for ourselves, but for him. Jesus says, Lord, that's just, you know, that, that's a word that we would translate as king, as boss, as the one who's in charge of all that we say and do. Spirit gives us the power to live that way. Tim Keller reflects on people that he has talked to from time to time who are checking out the Christian faith who can't accept the fact that that they might have to change some things, give some things up. So they want to come to Christ with a list of conditions. This is what he says. But the real question is this. Is there a God who is the source of all beauty and glory in life? And if knowing Christ will fill your life with his goodness and power and joy so that you would live with him in endless ages with his life increasing you every day... 
Is that so? Keller says, if that's true, then you wouldn't say things like, you mean I have to give up? Fill in the blank. Let's say you have a friend who is dying of some terrible disease. And so you take him to the doctor. And the doctor says, I have a remedy for you. If you just follow my advice, you will be healed and you will live a long and fruitful life. But there, there's only one problem. While you're taking my remedy, you can't eat chocolate. Now, what if your friend turned to you and said, forget it. No chocolate? What's the use of living? I'll follow the doctor's remedy, but I will also keep eating chocolate. Keller says, if Christ is really God, then all the conditions are gone. To know Jesus Christ is to say, Lord, anywhere that your will touches my life, anywhere that your word speaks, I will say, Lord, I will obey. That's what the Spirit lives in us for, to give us the power to obey. Keller says there are no conditions anymore. If he's really God, he can't just be a supplement. We have to come to him and say, okay, Lord, I am willing to let you start a complete reordering of my life. And that complete reordering of our lives, I believe, has to include a dogmatic belief in the sufficiency of who God is for us as our Father. The sufficiency of who he is to meet every need that we have. The Apostle Paul told the Philippian believers, you know these words, my God will meet all of your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. We can say those words, but I think it takes the Spirit's presence and power in us to live it out. And I think that there, there's a crucial question that every child of God must come to grips with. And it has to do with God's goodness and his sufficiency for us. Do I really believe that he's a good God? Do I really believe that he's a father to me, as the scripture teaches, and that, that he will take care of me even when circumstances are difficult? Do I believe that? Is he enough? So we're going to come back to that question at the end. Is he enough after we have read our text this morning, we're, we're picking up again in 1 Peter chapter 3. You remember last week we, we looked more closely at exhortations to, to wives and husbands. Remember, Peter was writing to believers that were living in a patriarchal society. The Roman culture believed that the order of the, the household was the foundation for order in the empire. And the household order was clearly the husband as ruler, uh, the wife as support at best, uh, children and slaves, and oftentimes children were, were like more slaves in the household. And Rome, remember, was increasingly suspicious of these people who were known as followers of Jesus, Christians, those who were in the way, capital W. The concern was that they were subversive because they spoke of allegiance to a different king than Caesar. And they spoke of a kingdom other than the Roman Empire. It's important to remember that when we read those words that, that deal with, with household order in Christian homes. Peter was not, nor were any of the New Testament writers, interested in an overthrow of the Roman Empire. He was passionate about making the good news of Jesus known far and wide 
to as many people who could hear it in any way that was possible. And the nature of the gospel is such that it is not advanced with force. The gospel is advanced with gentleness and meekness and humility that flows from changed lives. Make sense? That's why we must see that everything that Peter writes, and we've said this several times, through the lens of witness for Jesus. Everything that he's saying has to do with witness, getting the word out, making Jesus known. It is all about that. So last week, when we looked more closely at Peter and the exhortation that he had for husbands and wives, we we understood him using the word submission. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. A different model in the Christian home, and yet a pattern that was familiar in the Roman Empire. He wanted husbands and wives to live within the structure of society in a way that demonstrates the beauty of Christ to all who observe their lives. Husbands, treat your wives with respect. Consider them co-heirs with you in the gracious gift of life that God has given to you. That is radical stuff within a pattern that is very familiar to the people of Rome. And that's the way that gospel works. It transforms the norm and makes it something supernatural. The same was true. We saw his exhortation to, to slaves, as well as to all the believers in the attitudes that they had and their actions towards those who were in authority. Remember, it's all about witness. It's all about making the gospel known. And remember, too, that there's an important theme that runs all through Peter, and that is, your soul is secure. Peter never says it, but it's almost inferred. Who cares what happens to the body? Your soul is secure. Because of his emphasis and his understanding upon the suffering, the persecution that that is growing day by day. Remember, this letter was written right during the time of Nero, probably within a year or two of when the fire of, of Rome happened and Nero blamed it on the Christians. Peter is wanting them to know, yeah, this is the life we live, but this is just a hiccup compared to eternity. As the people of God, your souls are secure. Okay? All right, let's stand and we'll uh, continue reading in 1 Peter chapter 3. Here we go. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever among you would love life and see good days, must keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and and be seated. Peter picks up on some words from the Old Testament, Psalm, Psalm 32. You know, words that were spoken by the psalmist talking about 
life that is lived with God and before God on this earth. And it's interesting. You can read through the Old Testament and, and, and the evidence for the afterlife, for what we would say is eternal life, it, it's, it's, rather, it's rather sketchy. It's rather gray in the Old Testament. Uh, by the time you, you get to the New Testament, there is tremendous emphasis upon eternal life. So it's, it's interesting how Peter takes that text from Psalm 32 and says, you know, this is, this is what a life devoted to God is going to look like. We're going to be people who initiate peace. We're going to be people who, who avoid speaking evil into and about others. Those sorts of things he ties in with these final exhortations that he gives to these folks. Finally, all of you. Karen, can we put that slide up? Finally, all of you, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. It's interesting to read the commentators on this text. Some prefer to put, to put a break between those words compassionate and humble and then sort of shift the, the audience or the idea is do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. Peter is now kind of thinking in terms of those who are outside of the community of believers. That may be true. But I think it is also true that as God's people, obviously being like-minded, being sympathetic, loving one another, being compassionate and humble towards one another, those sorts of attitudes, I think, are undergirded by the idea of not repaying evil with evil or insult with insult, whatever that may look like, even within the body of Christ. What do you think? Why is it necessary for Peter to give these kinds of behavioral exhortations to believers. See what your neighbor thinks of that. Why is it necessary for Peter to give these guys? Yeah, and you're thinking, well, that's pretty obvious. Good. Talk about the obvious. Just for a couple minutes. Why is it necessary? Okay, we ready? What do you think? Somebody want to comment? Why do you think it was necessary for Peter to give these exhortations? Okay. <laughs> Amen to that, brother. Good, good, good. Instruction. Yeah, yeah. Paris, what do you think? Okay, good. Yeah, I like that. The, the internal and the external, I think, are both going on here. Yes, yeah. And sometimes that's just such a bummer, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Man, I want to react under the law versus under grace. Uh-huh. Good, good. Say more. Absolutely. Pentecost Sunday. That's what the Spirit came to do. To empower people to be like Jesus. It's such a description of, of Christ. Those activities are not things that we do in our natural selves. Okay, they're not things I easily do in my natural selves. I'll quit putting my sins on you guys. Because we are not by nature people who are, are like-minded. You know, like-minded there is, is thinking similar things about what is important. And the emphasis there, we're going to look at that one just a little bit more, has to do really with focus upon, again, Christ, Jesus as Lord, sympathetic. You know, having sympathy towards those who, who are hurting. 
you know, walking alongside of those who are wrestling and struggling, loving toward others, being loving toward others, even if they're different, especially if they're different. And, and humility, well, oftentimes humility is not our strong suit because we have something in us that, that wants to, we want to be noticed. We want to be important. We want to be thought well of. And, and I think generally speaking, these descriptions do, do not characterize the way that, that humans act toward one another, generally speaking. It certainly was not how the Roman citizens behaved. Certainly not uh, how their, their attitudes uh, were demonstrated or characterized uh, towards their slaves. Certainly not the way that, that the men of Rome thought or acted towards their wives and vice versa, where, where the wife had the opportunity to, to, uh, to stand up. Certainly not attitudes that they had towards their children. And again, remember, as I keep saying, this is missional language. This is evangelistic language. This is how do we make Jesus known. Peter is interested in the gospel being proclaimed through the way in which the people of God uh, spoke and, and behaved toward one another. You remember his, his language about being residents and or aliens and strangers in this world in which we live. And really the key words in this text, can we put that back, Karen? Easy enough? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, I'm sorry, the, the question with, finally, all of you. All of you. Those are three very telling words, all of you, because he is speaking to to a very mixed group, congregation that we know had both Jews and Gentiles, a lot of animosity there, a lot of history, a lot of ugly history, speaking to slaves and masters, men who were the ruling gender, women who were traditionally subjugated to a role that, that often was to be a demonstration of the husband's wealth and position. And then you add to that mix all of the economic differences that cut across all that social strata. This was quite a mix of people. And Peter says, all of you, all of you be like-minded. Be sympathetic. Love one another. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or, or insult with insult. When Peter urged the believers to, in chapter 2, live such good lives among the pagans that even though they might be suspected and even accused of wrongdoing, those same pagans would see their good deeds and have a change of heart. This is what Peter has in mind when they have opportunity to observe your interactions together, as well as the actions that you display towards others who are different from you, who are higher in authority from you, or lower in authority from you, who are richer or poorer, this is what Peter has in mind. It's it's this kind of transformed attitudes and actions that he knows is going to be a powerful witness for Jesus. You know, in language that... Linda and I have talked about this morning, relational covenant. This is kind of uh, Peter's relational covenant for the congregation in Rome. Live in this way. It's not normal human behavior so that when non-believers see 
how you speak with one another, how you treat one another, as they have opportunity to observe that and to hear that, they will be intrigued. And, and it shouldn't surprise us. It was Jesus' idea originally. He told his followers that, that the love that they demonstrated for one another would be what identified them more than anything else as his people. You know, our Connect group on Sunday morning has been reading a book by Tim Keller called Encounters with Jesus. And in the chapter that we read this, this week for, for this morning's discussion, he writes about Mary Magdalene. In John's account of the resurrection, you remember, Mary was the first one to show up at the empty tomb. And she was the first one, according to John, to meet the resurrected Jesus. She thought he was the gardener. And then she realized that it was him when he spoke her name. And then he made her the first missionary because he gave their assignment of going to the brothers and telling them that she had seen him. Listen to what Keller writes. I love this. He says, you know, Jesus could have easily arranged to make anyone the first messenger. He chose Mary. And that means that Jesus Christ specifically chose a woman. He didn't choose a man, of course, in a very male culture. He chose a woman, not a man. Chose a reformed mental patient. You remember Mary had been demon-possessed. Not a pillar of the community. He chose one of the support team not one of the leaders. That is exactly what Jesus does. He chooses those who are not great in the eyes of the culture to make him known. Think about the mix of people that he chose to be his original followers. Uneducated, fishermen, tax collectors, a traitor, one whose feet he washed on that last night, knowing full well what he was going to do. He chose them knowing that what could impress the world, and I say could, it's not automatic, what could impress the world with the truth of who he was was not just their verbal witness, which of course they were given responsibility to do, but the quality of life that they lived together. The idea is that people look at the way God's people act treat one another, talk about one another, and to one another, and they see something that is really different. So the question for us is, how do we live in obedience to the same exhortations that Peter gave to the believers who received this letter? Because like them, we face difficulties, and there's persecution that, that seems to be increasing for us related to our faith. So how do we live in harmony with one another, so that as the persecution becomes greater, there is greater witness to those outside of the community of believers. I think it really has to do with with taking to heart what I mentioned earlier, the truth of God's goodness and His sufficiency. Do I, do you, really believe that He is a good God? Do I believe that that he is a father to me and that he is taking care of me even when circumstances are difficult? Is he enough? Am I satisfied, in the words of Peter, that my soul is secure no matter what may be going on in this world that affects my physical comfort? And that, my friends, is the work of the Holy Spirit.
It is the Spirit of God who gives us the ability to do that. Do we want that? Is it important enough to us to be that kind of witness for the one whom we say is our Lord? It will change the way that I see other people. It will change the way that I respond to other people. The power of the Spirit of God living in us gives us the ability to believe that our Father is sufficient and that we do not need others to provide anything that we are lacking. It's about expectations. I think expectations and what we bring to the, to the fellowship, if you will, can often cause us trouble. I think that's why Peter gives these exhortations to believers because because we can battle them in in every breath that we take. The key to understanding what what Peter is saying is that first phrase, to be like-minded. It's a similar phrase that Paul uses when he writes to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, you may remember, he in the context of the unity of believers, He writes to them and tells them, be like-minded. And then he clarifies for them, like-minded, remember, is thinking about the same thing. It's an issue of importance. It's an issue of focus. Be like-minded. Have the same attitude that Jesus had. Have the same attitude that Jesus had. And then he goes on to outline that for us. You have a chance, read Philippians chapter 2, the first 11 verses. He spells out Jesus coming to earth to serve broken humanity and die as a sacrifice for sin. Live in harmony as God's people. Think like Jesus, and let his attitude control your actions. Paul wrote to the Philippians, and in that second chapter, basically was saying, you know, Jesus didn't leave the glories of heaven kicking and screaming. He came willingly, and he came willingly because he was confident in who he was as the Son of God. And his point to the Philippians and to us is this, and I think Peter is driving home the same point, we are not to go through life kicking and screaming and having expectations of others. My expectations get me into trouble. I don't know if if you can relate to this. Um, But we, like Jesus, can have confidence that we're always in the care of our Heavenly Father, which means that we, we do not live as can I say it this way? Needy or need-based people with expectations that others exist to help meet those needs. We live as children of the living, all-sufficient God who promises to meet all of our needs so that we can spend ourselves <clears throat> in giving to others. You ever think about it? Christian life is to be a life that is filled by the Spirit of God so that we are other-focused. We are giving ourselves away to others. That is what we are called to do. Does that sound like anyone that you know or have read about? That's what Jesus did. He came from heaven and gave his life for the sake of others. I know that I have... I've spoken about this a bit in the past, but I, I think it bears repeating. I hope it doesn't come too close to, uh, to heresy. But I really believe that as a human being, I have no needs 
that are satisfied by you as human beings. If you define need as something that you're going to die if you don't have, then we understand that God is the one who meets our needs. For me, and I know this doesn't square with a lot of the psychology that that we read, I think I understand what, what they're getting at. But when you think about what it is that we need to physically survive, we need food, we need water, we need shelter, we need clothing. Depending on you live, where you live in the world, those last two are negotiable. Okay? Frankly, I think we confuse as God's people needs and desires. We speak of need when what we mean is want. I need for you to do this. When really what we're saying is, I, I want for you to do this. Now, let's be honest. We must face the fact that oftentimes much of what it is that we want has to do with expectations of others. I can say, I need my wife to love and respect me. So, if she does not do that, will I die? No. I'll have a temper tantrum. I'll be upset. I'll pout. I'll be be disappointed, but but I'm not going to die. So if I'm not going to die, in my book then, it's not a need. It's a desire. And James, in his letter to believers, who were also scattered throughout the Roman Empire, wrote, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You quarrel and fight, you do not have because you do not ask. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. There again, self-focus that is just a part of who we are. When we find ourselves feeling less than charitable towards someone, we must ask the Spirit of God. That's why He's in us to teach us, to counsel us, to guide us, to open our hearts to the truth. Ask the Spirit of God to reveal to us the deceitfulness of our hearts, to remind us that God is our provider, and He has not put people in our lives to meet our needs or our desires. He may choose to use them, but we do not bring to the table an expectation that others will meet my needs. We bring to the table an awareness of who we are as children of God so that we can minister into the lives of others. You see how this works? If everyone is thinking that way, then everyone is going to be satisfied because we are going to be serving one another. I'm going to do a wedding this afternoon, and I'm going to tell this couple that they will never be more like Jesus. Both of them love the Lord Jesus, and they've, they've made him the Lord of their lives. I'm going to tell them, you'll never be more like Jesus than when you serve one another. I tell every Christian couple that when I marry them, because I really believe it. You know, we can say and do a lot of things and say that we're like Jesus, but Jesus gave his life to serve gave his life as a sacrifice, and we will never be more like him than when we are sacrificing for the sake of others and we're doing it based on our awareness and our confidence in who God is and who he has made us as his children. I truly believe that that is is the key to victorious living in Christ, to powerful witness for Christ 
in our lives and through our lives. So praise team, come on up and prepare to, uh, to lead us as, as we respond this morning. My brothers and sisters, it, it, it goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. <laughs> brothers and sisters, we have not been saved from ourselves so that we can go around and having our needs met by others. God has saved us and is sufficient for all that we need. It is ridiculous to, to think of others as those who can meet our needs. We have been saved. Our souls are secure so that we can live life in this body, giving ourselves away for the sake of others. It's the hardest thing in the world. Everything in us cries out against that, depending on the circumstance, depending on the person, depending on the situation. Everything in us cries out. I want to be recognized. I want to be important. I want to be special. And if we're really listening to the Spirit of God, He will remind us, you are special enough that the Son of God died for your life so that your soul can be secure as a child of God. Now get over yourself and get busy. Amen. Amen.